The coming of the devil plague suddenly makes the lamp dim. Then it is blown out, leaving man, ghost and corpses in a dark room. It's here. The news spreads like wildfire through the town. Bubonic plague has arrived. The Black Death, the Great Mortality, is here. And the Great Judgment bears down on all of us. Or not. Because this isn't Europe in 1347. It's Australia. And it's not that long ago, actually. It's 1900, the 25th of January in Sydney, to be precise. And we've actually been expecting the bubonic plague for a while now. An outbreak of the deadly disease had occurred in China just six years ago in 1894, but it had been largely ignored in the West until it hit British-controlled Hong Kong the same year and began to wreak havoc, as plague is wont to do. By 1896, it had reached India, and bodies were literally piling up in the streets, and panic was setting in to the so-called crown jewel of the British Empire. All of this had been widely reported in the Australian press. After all, India was not that far from Australia. It was only about 20 days from Bombay to Sydney by steamship after all, and the authorities had been preparing for the possibility that bubonic plague might make it here since they heard news of the outbreak in Hong Kong. However, bubonic plague wasn't headline news until that January day in 1900 when the Sydney Morning Herald thundered, The Bubonic Plague! Suspicious case in Sydney! The paper spared no detail, but urged the public to remain calm and insisted that there was no need for alarm. Australia had been expecting this, and we were well prepared for it. Or were we? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Hello, my fellow skeptics. Thank you so very much for joining me once again. As always, I would like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boonwurrung people on whose lands I am podcasting today and pay my respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Shout out also to Studio 4 at the State Library of Victoria, where this episode is being recorded. For more information or to book the studio yourself, please head to www.slv. .vic.gov.au. Now, don't worry too much if you've never heard of plague in Australia. I had neither until I watched ABC's Back in Time for the Corner Shop, and my curiosity was stoked. Plague? Bubonic plague? In Australia? The only plague outbreaks I'd heard of were those of 1347 to 1351, the infamous Great Mortality, which killed somewhere in the region of 50 million people across Europe, Asia and Africa. And then the sporadic, although in many ways equally catastrophic, outbreaks between 1600 to 1670, which killed more than 2 million people in France alone. And in England, 60,000 people perished during an outbreak between 1665 to 1666, 
which was still raging when the Great Fire of London began to burn. I mean, talk about bad luck. The last great outbreak I knew of was in Russia in 1770, although I was perfectly aware that it still existed in many parts of the world and continued to wreak havoc long after then. But I was completely in the dark about any outbreaks in Australia, especially in the comparatively recent past. But as I dug in, I realised this really wasn't all that surprising. Compared to previous outbreaks in Europe and Asia, Australia's brush with the deadly disease was minor, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. But this isn't the only reason that it's not a major event in the history books. Bubonic plague reached our shores at a rather busy time in the news cycle. Discussions and plans for federation, which would occur in 1901, were in full swing. The Boer War was still ongoing, and if you want to hear more about Australia's role in that conflict, check out my previous episode on Breaking Morant. The last century of the millennium was beginning to much fanfare, and the federal political parties that would eventually form our first government were being constructed. Bubonic plague certainly made the papers, but... After the few first sensationalist weeks, it became apparent that it was well-controlled and was confined, mostly, to Sydney. This wasn't great for Sydney, of course, but apart from a few sporadic cases in Melbourne, Adelaide and Fremantle, all port cities like Sydney, and a few up in North Queensland, plague never spread rapidly here. And in comparison to other outbreaks, the number of deaths was small. Now, this gets particularly interesting when you explore the statistics, and I know that there are lies, damned lies, and statistics, but they're relevant here, so bear with me. According to the World Health Organization, bubonic plague has a mortality rate of between 30 and 60%. So this means that, on average, 30 to 60% of people who contract bubonic plague will die from it. In 1900, in Australia there were 1,371 plague infections and 595 deaths. Now, that equates to a mortality rate of around 43%. Hong Kong in 1900 had less infections, just ever so slightly, 1,087, but they had 1,034 deaths. And that's a mortality rate of 95.5%, which is staggeringly high. Now, these numbers are even more shocking when you look at the population of both countries. Australia's population was over 3 million in 1900, while Hong Kong had just over 280,000 people. Of course, these stats don't tell the full story, or even half of it to be frank, but they are a good place for us to start. Compared to other countries which suffered plague outbreaks during the early 20th century, Australia's mortality rate remained within the average, while almost all other countries soared well beyond 60% mortality. But why? Was it because, as was claimed afterwards, Australia had simply been preparing for the possibility that bubonic plague would reach our shores since 1894? What factors did quarantine, sanitation, population and density play in reducing the mortality rate? And was it just because 1900 was such a busy year that plague is barely talked about these days? I'll be answering these questions and a few more after the break. Hey there, everybody. I hope you're all still feeling healthy and are well enough to come with me on a deep dive into the plague. 
Before we explore some questions, however, let's have a look at what we mean by the term plague and what it actually is. Now, the phrase plague was originally coined by a Roman physician called Galen to describe any fast-spreading and usually fatal disease. But since the first outbreak specifically of bubonic plague in Europe in 1347, the term plague has become associated with bubonic plague. Now, bubonic plague is a bacterial infection caused by a bacteria called Uricina pestis, which lives on small animals, usually rodents, and in their fleas. Now, human or house fleas, which despite their name actually can have a wide range of hosts, can also carry this bacteria. It's not restricted to rodent or animal fleas. And there's an increasing body of work by epidemiologists and medieval historians which suggests that the house flea might have had more to do with that infamous and deadly outbreak of 1347 than rats and rat fleas did. Of course, in 1347, nobody had heard of bacteria, sanitation was poor, rats were unwelcome but innocuous, and sickness and death were terrifying but inescapable parts of everyday life. Much of this is also true of the outbreak in 1665, We didn't know about bacteria or germs. The places worst hit were overcrowded, unsanitary cities. Rats would have been everywhere and death was always right around the corner. This is not to say that it would have been any less devastating or terrifying, especially if you knew a painful death was coming and there was nothing you could do about it. But the reason plague gets so much attention from the chroniclers of this time is because it was so deadly and so widespread, and none of the methods they knew about to cure disease was working. They'd never encountered anything like this. What exactly is it beyond being a bacterial infection? Well, it starts when someone is bitten by an infected flea or occasionally an infected animal. Today, if you get bitten by almost anything and you live in a place with modern medical facilities, you go and get a tetanus shot, maybe a rabies vaccine, and go on your merry way. But animal bites are rare in places like Australia nowadays, and they usually come from household pets rather than plague-carrying fleas. Back in 1347, or the outbreak in England in 1665, being bitten by a flea or a rat would have been an annoying but probably daily occurrence. In the modern day, of course, it's easy for us to wonder why nobody made the connection between rats and plague. Some did, but they were few and far between. And in a time of limited information dissemination and mass illiteracy, they were unable to get their theories in front of an audience. In 1347 in particular, religious ideas held much more sway than today. And people were more likely to listen to a priest than a physician or a scientist. It's worth pointing out here as well that in 1347, plenty of holy men were preaching from the pulpit that the plague was coming to England because England's women were unchaste and sinful and this was our punishment. They certainly weren't going to let some scientists suggesting it was rats or fleas get up on their pulpit and reduce their own power. However, given bites from rats and fleas were so common during these early outbreaks, for the most part, they were generally overlooked. But once someone has been bitten by a plague-carrying animal, 
they'll start to display fairly non-specific symptoms within two to eight days. Fevers, headaches, chills and weakness are all common early signs of plague and just about every other disease on earth, to be perfectly frank. Prior to modern testing, it couldn't be proven if someone had bubonic plague or not until the buboes that give the disease its name began to appear on the body. Of course, during major outbreaks, if someone became ill with anything, it was generally presumed they had bubonic plague until it could be proven they didn't. But when it was just beginning, those nonspecific symptoms allowed it to spread rapidly because people just didn't know what was coming. Now, the Ypestis bacteria travel through the blood to the lymph nodes where they can replicate and reproduce. Now, the lymph nodes swell and become painful, creating buboes, hence bubonic plague. Interestingly, though, despite the very common perception, these swellings don't turn black until near the end. Untreated buboes will turn black, hence black death, because they're full of dead congealed blood towards the end of the plague's life as the host is dying and sometimes can degenerate into open pus-filled sores. Now, without treatment, those sores can become infected themselves and in some outbreaks, it's actually hard to tell if someone died from a bubonic plague or from an infection of an open bubo. Now, bubonic plague can also turn into something called pneumonic plague. And this is when the bubonic plague bacteria spread to the lungs. Now, it's not a virus like pneumonia is. It's still a bacterial infection, but it's far, far more dangerous than bubonic plague. Now, pneumonic plague is incredibly contagious, and there are actually schools of thought that the outbreak of 1347 was not just bubonic plague, but was mainly pneumonic plague, although historians and epidemiologists still disagree on this. Now, pneumonic plague is inevitably fatal, like most diseases, of course, if it's not treated, but there's a really nasty sting in the tail with pneumonic plague. If it's not caught and treated within 24 hours, the mortality rate is 90 to 95%. So thinking back to the World Health Organization's statistics on bubonic plague, Bubonic plague is fatal 30 to 60% of the time and with intense antibiotic treatments, you're most likely to make it, particularly in the modern day. With pneumonic plague, even in the modern day, if it's not caught within that first 24 hours, the mortality rate is 90 to 95% and this is an incredibly contagious disease. Now, there have been some successes with intense antibiotic treatments after 24 hours but the mortality rate for this type of plague is still disturbingly high in places where it exists. During the Australian outbreak there were actually only six recorded instances of pneumonic plague in total which may actually help explain the extremely low mortality rate that we had. So now that we know what plague is and how it spreads let's turn our attention to the really interesting question of the day. How did Australia manage to maintain such a low infection and death rate compared to other areas during the outbreak? To put it in perspective, the bubonic plague outbreak of 1900 actually lasted until 1925. And throughout that entire period, 
less than 600 people died and only slightly more than 1,300 were infected. More Australians were killed in the Boer War of 1899 to 1901 than died of bubonic plague in 25 years. Compare this once again to Hong Kong, which was first hit in 1894 and experienced outbreaks of the plague until 1929, approximately 24,000 cases were reported and roughly 20,000 people died. Now, you could argue that plague outbreaks lasted 10 years longer in Hong Kong than in Australia and the sanitary conditions, which we will explore in a moment, were very different and this is absolutely true, but this is still a horrifying statistic. Hong Kong's population was 280,000 in 1900. They lost around 10% of their population to plague. And that's really cold comfort to the 595 Australians who were killed by plague. But for such a virulent disease that has a track record of utter devastation and destruction, I think Australia can pat itself on the back for how well we dealt with this one. Deaths in the hundreds over a 25-year period, compared to deaths in the tens of thousands, which everywhere else that experienced plague at this time had, that's an accomplishment. But how? How did we do it? At the time, and in later years, much was made of the literal years of preparation by the various colonial governments. As I've mentioned already, Australia didn't federate until 1901 and by 1901 nobody was much scared of bubonic plague. 500,000 people lined the route to Centennial Park in Sydney to watch the Federation Parade and 100,000 people were in the park to witness the ceremony itself. So because we hadn't federated, it was the health departments of individual colonies that dealt with the bubonic plague outbreaks. Because the plague was most virulent in Sydney, this is where I'm going to be focusing on in this episode. Sydney was, and still is, a very busy port city with multiple passenger and cargo ships making their way in and out of the port each day. The authorities knew that plague was coming. They knew that it was most likely to get to Australia through a port. In fact, it had to enter Australia through a port. In 1900, there were no planes. It was all still ships. So it was only a matter of time. And since Sydney was the largest and busiest port in the colonies at the time, it was suspected it would come through there. Now, the colony of New South Wales already had a quarantine station at North Head. And any ships entering the colony that were suspected of carrying contagious diseases had to dock there and all the passengers were quarantined. This was actually pretty standard across all the colonies from the 1830s onwards and we saw similar policies reintroduced during COVID-19 on cruise ships when they were prevented from docking while temporary quarantine stations were set up. Those passengers from the 1830s onwards or say during plague times in 1900 who were obviously ill were taken immediately to special hospitals at the quarantine station while other passengers went through the standard procedure of being showered, deloused and having their clothes and possessions fumigated. In later years, as immigration increased to Australia, particularly in the post-World War II years, this just became a standard procedure. Everyone went through a quarantine station before landing. Anyone who fell ill during the quarantine period 
went to the hospital, while those who remained healthy were allowed to enter New South Wales or whichever colony they'd happened to land in. Interestingly, though, despite the known threat of the plague, the quarantine station at North Head was not upgraded prior to 1900. And the reasons for this are really unclear. In fact, the only quarantine station in the colonies which made an effort to prepare for the possibility of plague by upgrading and extending its facilities was Port Nepean Quarantine Station, which is in Victoria. So does this mean that the myth of preparation was a lie? Well, no, not at all. But it does call into question some of the fundamental assumptions that have been made since. New South Wales was prepared for the possibility of plague. But remember, the overseas outbreaks began in 1894, and Australia didn't get its first case until 1900. Six years is a long time, and there may have been a degree of complacency occurring. The upcoming federation process may also have played a part, as it was known that once the colonies became a commonwealth, the new federal government would take over responsibility for quarantine and public health. The New South Wales colonial government may have felt, and probably not unreasonably, that spending money on the quarantine station would have made it unpopular with its voters. At this point, Australia actually had universal white male suffrage, so governments actually had to work to keep everybody happy if they wanted to be re-elected, not just please a small circle of elites like in Britain. Finally, the reason that Victoria may have been better prepared than others was simply that there had been a recent scandal at the Port Nepean quarantine station and the Victorian government had recently replaced the superintendent there. New blood usually brings new ideas and the management at North Head didn't undergo any changes during this period. And it wasn't that the quarantine station was unprepared, not by a long shot, but rather that they thought they were already prepared. North Head would play a major role in curbing the outbreak of plague in New South Wales, but not quite the role everyone had imagined. After all, ships with infected passengers would have to radio ahead, they'd be sent to North Head, the plague could be stopped at the border. Perfect. It was a good theory, but it wasn't quite how things played out. I'll be back with more after this break. You see, the trouble with all the preparation and forethought about bubonic plague in 1900 was that it was based on a false premise. During the outbreaks in Hong Kong, China and India, two scientists had separately identified the bacteria that caused the plague. One was Swiss-French and gave his name to it, and the other was Japanese. But there was scepticism about the idea that the disease itself was epizootic. That is, that it originated in animals and that they could then infect humans. Now, today, epizootic diseases are well known. But at this time, most medical practitioners didn't believe in epizootic diseases and thought that bubonic plague was spread from person-to-person contact. Now, pneumonic plague spreads rapidly this way, usually through infected droplets when someone coughs. But bubonic plague is much harder to catch from person-to-person contact. Remember, it infects the blood and the lymph nodes, so it won't necessarily be in droplets, although you should still cover your cough no matter what you may or may not have. But to catch bubonic plague from a person, you'd have to be in direct contact with an infected open bubo 
and the bacteria within that would then have to find an opening in your body to begin their deadly work. By 1900, germ theory was well established and staff at quarantine stations were wearing masks and gloves, so any risk of contact with infected buboes was limited. In 1898 as well, two years before plague reached Australia, French physician and scientist Paul-Louis Simon proved that fleas on infected rats caused bubonic plague, although many in the scientific world were sceptical, again coming back to this uncertainty about epizootic diseases at the time, and it wouldn't be until 1907 that the medical and scientific community officially agreed that bubonic plague was spread by animals rather than person-to-person contact. Now, that said, quarantine was absolutely still necessary. But because the quarantine had been prepared assuming that plague spread from person to person, they weren't actually looking out for any rats that might sneak past. Everyone at Fort Head in New South Wales or Port Nepean in Victoria was just waiting for the first plague ship to come in. But of course, it didn't. Instead, those plague rats did what they have been wont to do since they first tore across Europe in 1347. They snuck on in quietly. On the 25th of January 1900, a delivery driver in Sydney named Arthur Payne became ill. His symptoms were unusual enough that the Board of Health was informed and it was decided that Arthur Payne, along with his wife, three children, all under eight years old, a guest who'd been staying with the family and their maid, needed to be transported to North Head for observation. The reports were calm, despite the dramatic headline I read to you at the beginning, which was about Arthur Payne's story, and there was much speculation by doctors that Arthur Payne didn't have bubonic plague and insisted that quarantine was merely a precaution. He'd been in contact with the docs, so possibly he'd got it there, if he had it at all. But the following day, however, experts confirmed that Arthur Payne indeed had bubonic plague and the Sydney Morning Herald went wild. But after two days of breathless reporting, it calmed down again. Payne only had very mild symptoms and none of the people from his household were ill at all. Luckily for him, he recovered and was released from quarantine on the 18th of February 1900. But this was just the beginning. The first death from bubonic plague in Australia happened just days later, on the 22nd of February 1900, also in Sydney, and the victim was a man named Thomas Dudley, a former ship's captain. Now, some of you history buffs may know this name and when I first heard it, I had to go back and double check because Thomas Dudley dying of bubonic plague seemed like an impossibly gruesome story. You see, Thomas Dudley had already been in the papers and I'd heard of him and his grisly tale before, although I hadn't known he'd died of the plague. Now, Dudley had made international headlines in 1884 after he and three other men, his first mate, a seaman and a man described as a young apprentice, had put to sea in a yacht 
heading from London to Sydney. I believe they were trying to set some sort of world record. However, off the coast of South Africa, they encountered a violent storm and had to abandon the yacht. Now, while they made it to a lifeboat, they lost their provisions all apart from a few sea biscuits and it was looking like they were going to starve to death. What happened next, and some of you may already have guessed or know what happens next if you've read any 19th century books on what sailors do when they're stranded. The rest of this story comes to us from the seaman, who was a man called Brooks. Now, Brooks claimed that after the biscuits were exhausted and the men were dying of hunger, Captain Dudley proposed lots should be drawn and the unsuccessful men should be killed to provide food for the other three. Brooks claimed he objected and refused to participate, so what the papers later called the sacrifice was postponed. But 20 days after the yacht had been wrecked and with no prospect of rescue in sight, Dudley and his first mate, a man named Edwin Stevens, killed the apprentice, whose name was Richard Parker, and all three of the survivors, Brooks included, fed on Parker until they were rescued four days later by a German ship and taken back to London. Now, there's been endless debates over the years about whether or not they would have survived that next four days until the ship rescued them, but in some ways it's a moot point. Parker was killed, and it's not like Dudley or Stevens or Brooks knew that ship was coming. Brooks always denied participating in the killing of Parker, and he turned Queen's evidence in London in exchange for immunity from prosecution. Now, as you can imagine, when this story broke, the papers in England and then all over the world went mad for it. Now, Dudley and Stevens were convicted of murder and cannibalism, despite pleading necessity, and they were sentenced to death. However, they were reprieved on appeal by a judge who agreed that they'd had no other choice but to kill Parker. So both were instead sentenced to six months imprisonment without hard labour and Dudley left London for Australia after he'd served his time. He never talked about the incident, and really I can't blame him, except in cryptic references and he was something of an infamous figure in the area of Sydney where he settled. The fact that he was the first person in Australia to die from bubonic plague only adds to the dark horror of his story, in my opinion. And this is really one of those instances where I think life is often stranger than fiction. And history, as I've always said, is often stranger than the myths we create around it. If I read a novel about a cannibal captain who settled in Australia and then died of bubonic plague, I'd be wondering what the hell I was reading. But the story of Thomas Dudley is not fiction. It's fact. It's disturbing, to be sure, but it's also true. And how did plague get to Australia? Well, the plague ship the authorities had been waiting for arrived without incident and slipped into the docks at Sydney without quarantine. But there was no subterfuge involved. It was a cargo ship and none of the crew were ill. And on board that ship, as on board every ship, there were rats. On board the rats, there were fleas. And Arthur Payne, the first known case, was, as we've already heard, a delivery driver who worked at the docks. Some of these fleas hitched a ride on the goods he was delivering, then hitched a ride on Payne, then bit him, and plague. But 
while Payne was the first case, and Thomas Dudley, of course, the first death, this episode isn't really about the cases or the deaths, but how Australia managed to escape devastation at the hands of such a deadly disease. Now that we know what it was, we know where it came from, we know where it began, and we know that Australia had such a low mortality rate, let's look at why this was. I mean, Australia was almost entirely reliant on maritime trade. Early experiments attempting complete self-reliance had been a dramatic failure. And really, we should have been a sitting duck. Plague should have come swarming through our ports and decimated our population like it had everywhere else. But it didn't. The preparation I've already talked about did play a role in preventing a massive number of infections and deaths. But remember, a lot of that preparation was done early on, when it was believed that bubonic plague spread quickly from person to person, not from animal to person. Now, the authorities actually picked up quickly that this wasn't happening. And I think that one of the main reasons that the plague did not get a serious foothold here was because the colonial authorities and later the new federal administration realised their preparation had been lacking and they changed tactics. They switched it up. So rather than waiting for infected ships to arrive and to deal with it then, which was how they'd previously imagined it would work, the authorities took the view that plague was probably already in the community due to ships with infected rats having already docked, these rats having escaped and probably infecting the local rats and people being bitten and plague getting out there. So they set up a three-pronged program to tackle this idea. Plague is already in the community. We can't stop it getting in. We need to contain it. Firstly, the government of New South Wales set up a new department called, rather unimaginatively, the Plague Department. Now, this was so that the Colonial Health Department wasn't overstretched by trying to manage both plague and other public health concerns. Now, the Plague Department instigated a major disinfectant and cleaning program. So just days after Arthur Payne was confirmed to have had the plague, the department swooped on his neighbourhood with lime, carbolic water and lime chloride and began cleaning and all household waste in the area, including rubbish and stable bedding, was burned. Now, this became a really regular occurrence. If anyone in the neighbourhood had plague or was quarantined with suspected plague, the plague department's cleaning teams came in and disinfected everything. And if the figures are anything to go by, this seems to have been very effective. In other places, plague tended to sweep through a whole neighbourhood or a whole household at the very least. But In Australia, generally, only one or two people in a household got it, and it didn't tend to rush through the entire neighbourhood. Another factor that I think also contributed to Australia's good fortune in beating back the plague was that the people, for the most part of course, had confidence in the colonial authorities. So the majority of Australians in the colonies at this time were either British themselves or the children of British parents. So they trusted the men who represented the mother country. In other British colonies which were badly hit by plague, and I'll talk of India and Hong Kong in particular, the local people had absolutely no reason to trust that the British colonial authorities had their best interests at heart. The brutal and heavy-handed ways they'd been treated prior to the outbreak 
meant they were quite rightly suspicious of the authorities' claims that such strong and invasive measures were needed to curb the disease. They knew the disease was there. They knew it was a problem. But why would they trust people who had been doing active harm to them and their families and their people and their country for upwards of 100 years? It's also worth noting that at this time, plague control measures were incredibly invasive and the authorities in places like India and Hong Kong had absolutely zero cultural sensitivity in the early stages. In Hong Kong in particular, when people refused to leave their homes or let the decontamination teams in, rather than negotiate and explain, the authorities sent in soldiers, the British Army, to force their way into people's homes and eject them. Now, I do understand, of course, the need for decontamination and infection control measures during a plague, but a badly treated local population is not going to assist you, and during an epidemic, you need public assistance. I mean, just think of all the work we had to do during COVID-19 if you set soldiers on them, especially not when those soldiers have been the tools of violent colonial oppression. Because the majority white British populations of the major cities were not experiencing colonial oppression and instead looked to the authorities for protection, they were more willing to accept temporary invasive measures. We did the same during COVID when we stayed home, we wore masks and took a test every time we coughed. It was temporary, we trusted the authorities making the mandates, and most of us had no reason to believe that the restrictions would be anything sinister. Now, this is not to dismiss the legitimate concerns of people and cultural groups who have been on the receiving end of government violence and people who have reason to mistrust authority, but when we feel we're being protected, we tend to act in our own and others' best interests. During the plague outbreak of 1900, most Australians felt protected by the rules, so accepted them. So, we have the switch in tactics by colonial authorities, the effective quarantine program, the plague department and its decontamination squads, and most of the general public trusting these measures, however invasive they seem, will be both temporary and effective. But there was one other factor in Australia's good fortune. I'll tell you all about it right after the break. The third prong of New South Wales's three-pronged plague minimisation strategy was simple. Kill the rats. Along with quarantine and decontamination, getting rid of the rats, which were the carriers of the disease, made a whole lot of sense. The New South Wales government announced it would pay two pence, which is about $1.50 in today's money, for every rat delivered to an incinerator in Bathurst. Now, if you're familiar with the cobra effect and other types of perverse incentives, you might be wondering what stopped Sydney ciders from just breeding rats and taking them off to the incinerator to get paid. Well, there were multiple factors, actually, but three were most prominent. Firstly, there was a plague. There was literally a plague. So, Even though official scientific consensus that rats and fleas caused the plague wouldn't come until 1907, it was already well known that these filthy little critters caused all kinds of other diseases, and there was no love lost between Sydney ciders and the rats. 
The fact that they might be behind the plague plunged this relationship to new lows and while I'm sure a few less scrupulous people entertained the idea, there's no evidence of anyone breeding rats and collecting the bounty. The second factor that prevented a cobra effect taking hold was that to receive the bounty, you had to bring the whole rat to the incinerator, not just a tail, as had been done across the world in previous rat-catching efforts, such as during the Great Rat Massacre in Hanoi in 1902, the French colonial authorities created a cobra effect by paying a bounty on rat tails, on the assumption that people would only cut tails off dead rats they'd killed and then present the tail to collect the bounty. As it turned out, people did not do this, and it was only discovered when tailless rats were seen running around Hanoi, people were severing the tails off live rats, which, by the way, I don't like rats, but that's awful. There's never any excuse for animal cruelty like that. But then releasing the rat to go and keep breeding so they could collect more tails and make more money. The city officials in Hanoi might have had more success dealing with their rat population if they'd taken a leaf out of Sydney's book in 1900. As mentioned, the bounty was only paid if someone bought the whole dead rat to the incinerator. So this minimised the temptation for people to breed rats to try and collect the bounty. The third influence against a cobra effect was that while the public could collect a bounty of any rats they killed, most of the rats killed and incinerated in Sydney during the plague were killed by professional rat catcher teams. These teams were salaried men, paid a daily wage, and couldn't claim the bounty on the rats they caught and killed. More than 100,000 rats were exterminated by these professional teams, although the number killed by private individuals was probably much larger. Put together, these factors reduced the likelihood of anyone deciding to try and make a bit of money on the sly. It's also worth noting that cobra effects don't tend to happen during a public health crisis. Imagine for a moment being a Sydney cider in 1900, secretly breeding rats to get paid a bounty and being caught by the authorities, or perhaps more alarmingly, your neighbours. I can't imagine you'd get a nice lenient sentence or that anyone in town would be particularly happy with you for breeding little plague machines. As I mentioned earlier, while plague technically lasted in Australia until 1925, 1900 was the worst year and infections steadily declined after that. By the end of 1902, despite plague still being present in the New South Wales community, and 139 people having been infected over the 1901-1902 calendar years. Only 39 people died, and Sydney ciders, as well as those in more regional and remote areas of New South Wales, were back living relatively normal lives. Those who were sick were still being sent to quarantine stations at North Head. The plague department was continuing to conduct its serious washing-out service, although on a much less regularly needed basis, and the government rat catchers were still hard at work, although the public bounty system was discontinued after 1901. After 1902, though, infections were counted in tens, not hundreds, and the highest outbreak between 1903 and the last infection in 1929 was 47 infections, of which 16 proved fatal. After that, plague infections never topped out at more than 10, and most years were plague-free. 
with the last recorded case in 1929 being the only case that year. Which really brings us to the answer of the question that started this episode. The plague is barely mentioned in Australian history because, really, it wasn't a big deal. Very few people died. The disruption to people's lives was minor. Quarantine periods only lasted five days. And the government responses meant it never got a foothold here. In 1900, we had a population of over 3 million people. And we only lost 595 of them to one of the most deadly diseases the world has ever seen that has a track record for killing millions of people in one epidemic. That says something. But I think it was less a matter of good preparation and more down to the flexibility of the authorities to change their tactics and the cooperation of ordinary Australians that prevented the plague from causing the kind of damage it was known for. A final point here. In 1918, the Spanish flu reached our shores. Like the plague, we'd been expecting it. And, like the plague, we tried to prepare for it. But the sheer number of severely ill people, often soldiers, returning from overseas took the authorities by surprise. As did the flu's pattern of infecting healthy people rather than the generally established pattern of infecting the very young and the very old. The population of 1918 was also far less healthy than in 1900. Cities were more overcrowded, slums had developed, and people were poor and weary after four years of war. What's more, Australia's population had jumped from 3 million in 1900 to 5 million in 1918. The plague lasted almost 30 years and killed less than 600 people. The Spanish flu lingered only a year in Australia. We were lucky in comparison to some places. But in that time, 15,000 Australians died and thousands more were infected. Of course, Spanish flu is not the plague. But here's the interesting part. By 1918, we'd pretty much forgotten all about the plague outbreaks. And in the face of Spanish flu, this new and far more immediately deadly disease that caused havoc across all corners of Australia, plague just faded into the background and it was never brought up in general history again. And that's all I have for you today, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can get in touch with me at my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. Or on my social media. I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Next episode, we're examining a mystery that has baffled police, parliamentarians and amateur sleuths for 132 years. On the 9th of October, 1891, between midnight and one o'clock in the afternoon, somebody stole the parliamentary mace from the Victorian Legislative Assembly. To this day, it has never been found, despite a $50,000 reward. And while many people were questioned, no one was ever arrested. But how does a five-foot-long gold-plated mace just disappear? And... Was it quite as valuable as the public believed? Find out next time on The Skeptical Historian. The Skeptical Historian is researched, produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. 
The quote read at the beginning of this episode is part of the translated poem The Death of Rats by Chinese poet Si Taonan and was written in the 18th century. You can find a full list of resources used in this episode by going to my website and clicking on Sources. My sound effects come from Adobe Creative Cloud, Pixabay, and Epidemic Sound, all used under the relevant license. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic is used under an Epidemic Sounds individual license, and podcast hosting is by rss.com. See you next time, skeptics.